The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This is like the governor's episode. We have uh, Mike Johnson, who's running to be the governor of Colorado. One of my students comes up to me with tears running down his face and says to me, you know, Mr. Johnston, why did you make me do all this? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I did everything you ever asked me to do. I got good grades. I was on student council. I applied to college. I got in and you know, I'll never be able to go. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, well, because I'm undocumented. We have Mayla Mitchell, who's running to be the governor of Wisconsin. And we have the news, as usual, with me, Brittany, Sam. Clint's not with us this week because he was traveling. But, you know, we love Clint and he'll be back. So we're this week. Not too long ago, I was at an event and I was being introduced to a woman at the event. And it was her son standing next to her. And her son introduced himself. And I said, hi, I'm DeRay. And he said, hi, my name's Brave. And I was like... Brave is like the best name that I can, that is such an incredible name. And he owned it too. And I think too about the speech Brittany gave not too long ago uh, about the names that we call our young people. And today I wanted to talk about the way people respond to what we call them and respond to the pieces of themselves that we recognize. And when we call our young people and when we call each other brave and fearless and thoughtful and kind uh, and courageous, that that is a part of them that often speaks back. And on the flip side, when we say things about our young people like they have no attention span and they're not focused and they don't care and they're apathetic, it's like that actually is the part of them that we're calling forth. That we have a responsibility to be mindful about the language that we use to name our young people, to name the parts of them that we want to show up, and the same with each other. Let's do it. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pack Yeti on all social media. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-E-Y on Twitter. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. Yeah, I really don't care. Do you? That jacket was so <laughs> wild that she actually <laughs> wore that to go be around people affected by immigration. You know what's really messed up? Like, it is from a store where I shop at. Fairly frequently. And like, had she not worn the jacket and it been readily associated with this, I totally would have bought that jacket and worn it. And so from a very personal space, I am frustrated for her ruining that fashion option for me. But much more importantly, I cannot believe that not only did she wear it, she wore it to go to visit one of the centers. And then her team really had the nerve to look all of us in the face and been like, it's just a jacket. There was no hidden message. And they were like, it wasn't a mistake. And my, my boss, shout out to Ann Molly. She was like, uh, yeah, there's no hidden message because it's totally right, obvious right. what you're trying to say. You really don't care. Like, yeah, no, it's not hidden at all. We know exactly what you're saying. And do not treat us like we are dumb and do not realize that you do not do, y'all do everything intentionally, everything. Yeah, I mean, it was wild to see the reaction on Twitter as this was all unfolding because it, the first reaction for, from everybody was, this can't be real. So everyone was like, is this real? Is this real? And then right. they confirmed, Photoshop. her spokespeople confirmed that in fact she did wear the jacket. It did say, I really don't care, do you? 
And they really didn't even care that she wore the jacket. They were like, oh, it doesn't even matter. They were literally like, I really don't care when asked about the I really don't care jacket. It is one of those things, too, where it's like they have just mastered the art of distraction because for, what, 24 hours, we were not talking Mm -hmm. about the kids anymore. Everybody was talking about that jacket. And it's like, y'all are just a nightmare, just a nightmare with like the PR machine and just like the complete disregard and how dare they come out. Did you read about the tender? What was it? The tender age shelters for the newborns? Tender age shelters. Yeah. yeah. Like, what is a tender age shelter? Yeah, the and then they try to do that little sneak executive order creating, like not even solving a problem that he created. Right. Which, yeah, first of all, it wasn't an actual solution, right? You can blame the Democrats or, you know, ghosts or... <laughs> You know, your former hairline. That was good, Brittany. Well done, Brittany. (laughs) However much you want. But we all know that this is a problem if it's causing no matter who he blames. And no, that wasn't a solution at all. All, you know, a family concentration camp, a family detention center is still a detention center. It is still a concentration camp. I don't care if you've got more people in there. The point is to not actually be setting up these centers and putting people in them. Um, Not just to reunite people in detention centers. And we also know that this executive order had zero plan for reunification. I don't even believe there was a plan for reunification from the very beginning because these children are being sent with no paperwork. They are Nobody knows who their parents are or who they're attached to. I have been like up for nights really frustrated and scared and worried about what is happening, what is happening to the girls, what is happening to the families that have already been separated, what will happen to the families that will go to detention. The executive order said they wanted to detain people indefinitely. I mean, it just there are so many things here that indicate a, a very clear orientation toward a fascism and a nationalism that we want to pretend like isn't happening, but it is. But shout out to Parker Malloy and some other folks who saw Melania's jacket, saw that it was a distraction. And decided to pull the website IReallyDoCare.com, where you can go and you can donate to 14 organizations that are supporting immigrants and immigrants' rights. Right now, you literally make one donation and it gets split 14 ways. Um, And it's a, a, a variety of organizations. So everyone from the ACLU to some local organizations to organizations that are being run by Latinx people. And so really, really thankful for that and the Photoshop job on on the advertisement for that for that website was brilliant. So this is a a good segue into my news, which you know, in talking about for the past couple of weeks is this conversation around uh, separating families and immigration detention has happened. One of the big sort of undercurrents from Trump and from uh, now Mike Huckabee, if you saw him tweeting this weekend, uh, is this attempt to portray all immigrants as criminals, right? And we saw this from the day that Trump announced his campaign, talking about, uh, you know, murderers and rapists. Uh, We saw this in the ways in which uh, Trump talked about uh, immigrants being animals and uh, and then tried to pivot and say he was talking about MS-13. And then Mike Huckabee recently just posted a racist tweet uh, where he essentially said that I think it was Nancy Pelosi's campaign committee uh, were a bunch of, uh, I think it was a picture of gangsters who were Latino. And he was trying to make the case that essentially all immigrants were uh, criminals and, and gang members. And, and that's really the narrative that you hear uh, all day, every day on Fox News. And so what I want to talk about is a study that adds a little bit of data to this question of how immigrants are being portrayed more broadly in society. 
uh, and this study is from the Opportunity Agenda. And what they did was they randomly sampled 40 shows on TV from 2014 through 2016. Uh, and what they found was that, number one, that immigrants are underrepresented uh, on TV relative to their size in the population. So immigrants are about 17% of the population, and only 6% of those represented as character in these shows. And then what they also found was that immigrants are more likely, uh, Latino immigrants specifically, are more likely to be represented as criminals. So 50% of Latino immigrants represented on TV in the study were actually represented in the act of committing some sort of crime. 50% or, or, is uh, wild, Sam. 50%. 50%. So, you know, this isn't just Mike Huckabee and Trump and Fox News. This is the way that our broader society chooses to portray immigrants, and it feeds directly into this narrative that we're seeing in terms of how folks are being treated when they're just showing up you know, for asylum. Folks are being criminalized, kids are being criminalized, and in many cases, that idea of folks being criminals is reinforced every day on TV. You know, I was just having a conversation with some college students earlier this week over dinner, and we were talking about something we talk about very often on the pod, right, about how much culture influences attitudes toward marginalized groups, how much it can shift policy, how much it can shift institutional practice. It really, really matters what people are seeing on TV and through media because they are drawing conclusions about entire groups of people. And if you have grown up in a world or in a, in a neighborhood or a city or a town where you have not experienced a certain kind of people, all you know comes from media. Uh, and so if half of the Latinx people that you see on screen, especially if you're growing up in that kind of circumstance, are supposedly criminals in some kind of way, then not only are you going to make an assumption about all Latinx people, you're also going to make an assumption about anyone who appears in that way, right? So we saw the picture in Mike Huckabee's patently racist tweet, and media, please don't call it something else. It's just plain old racist, right? And these men have tattoos and their shirts are off, and it's like, they could be gangsters or like they could be obstetricians and this is just how they like to look. But because of the media bias against people of color and against, in this case, Latinx people and often Latinx men, there is a certain image that is created about anyone who looks this way and the assumptions that we make about them. And so, you know, lots of organizations have been working on correcting this media bias for a long time. And you will see that it is applicable to lots of different uh, marginalized groups. And so if you look and really examine and interrogate the ways in which South Asian people or Muslim people or LGBTQ people or black people um, or women are represented in the shows that you watch, you will recognize that without information coming from any other place, you are just as prone to stereotyping folks as anyone else is. You know what, that was interesting from this study and both from what you said, Britt, and from what you said, Sam, is that they know that the the people who are using these images, they know that they're feeding off of a set of ideas and beliefs that are deeply problematic and racist, and they know that their base is hungry for that. So they know that there's like an appetite for this idea that every Latino is a gang member and is going to kill somebody. There's an appetite for this idea that every immigrant who comes over, whether they come over through a legal immigration program or something different, is like here to steal a job or is going to take away their child's 
access to any economic prosperity. But we know that what is true to people's lives is a narrative that doesn't feed on that and that doesn't stoke that. And what I thought was interesting from uh, what the article references and what the study talks about is this notion of not telling fear-based stories. And when I read that, I was like, okay, this makes, like, I think I know what that means. And then I read the subtext and they talked about that when immigrants are portrayed on TV, it is either they are living in fear, like living in fear of deportation, living in fear of the police, living in fear of some economic crisis, or they are causing fear that they are, like, again, gang members, robbers, those sort of things. And it was so interesting because I'd never thought about the the idea of fear-based storytelling as being sort of those two buckets, as the, like, living in fear or causing fear. And I think that what the study sort of pushes the industry to think about and to reconsider is, like, fear isn't the axis of how everybody lives every moment of their lives, and it shouldn't be. And when we tell stories that reinforce this idea, it actually is feeding an appetite that does real damage offline. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Before we go to your news, Brittany, I heard a rumor, and by rumor, I mean, I think I saw it on TV, that you got the Shine a Light Award from BT and Pantene because you are a bright light and a beacon. BT is late to to realize it because we knew it a long time ago. <laughs> but I just wanted to say congrats because you have been a light in my life and hey, I think in pew, all pew, of pew. our lives and, and on the pod. <laughs> and um, and I think one of the things that you do so well, and the, the award already gave you ups, but we giving you ups because we knew you before this award. Is that, Big ups to Brittany. <laughs> like you, you are always really gracious about like helping people enter into conversations that they don't, they might not have the ability to, and like making sure that people who are around you like leave better off, even if they don't know that your challenge is making them better. And I've always appreciated that. Aw, thanks, Doray. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate it. My news for this week uh, actually takes us back, Doray, to where you and I first met. I actually remember about three days after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. He was killed on August 9th, 2014, uh, which was a Saturday. That Monday, I was driving to work, and I decided that I wanted to drive through Ferguson in order to eat breakfast there and put money back into the community, specifically on West Florissant Avenue, um, which was a a street that I spent a lot of time on as a child um, and is very representative of the movement that was birthed there. And my car had stopped. I had to push it into a gas station, so I had to call around for a tow truck. I'm calling for places that will come and pick me up. And it took me about five or six phone calls before somebody would actually come and pick me up. And I finally just got really frustrated. And I asked this one woman, like, why won't why won't you come pick me up? And she puts me on hold and she comes back and she goes, because of the riots. And she hangs up. And it dawned on me in that moment that there was an impression that was being built about Ferguson and specifically this strip in in Ferguson of West Florissant Avenue. And, you know, I've said time and time again what Dr. King has said, that a riot is the language of the unheard and property damage can't be more important than people's lives. And what we were essentially seeing on on just a few nights in Ferguson, certainly not anything close to the 400 nights that we were protesting around the city. What we saw on that night was a, a deep frustration that had been bottled up for so long that it ran over. And instead of embracing your neighbor and building community and reinvesting what we have seen, what I saw on that day and what we have continued to see is that in a particular corner of Ferguson, a, a corner that is black and a corner that is now famous for the uprising. Um, that it has been systematically ignored. So the Washington Post recently did a story about how those attitudes have continued. There have been a lot of brick-and-mortar developments in Ferguson, um, restaurants, jazz clubs, condos, a Starbucks, and a community center and job training center. And of the $36 million spent on brick-and-mortar developments in Ferguson, only $2.4 million for that job training center directly benefited that pocket of Ferguson on West Florissant Avenue. You've probably heard us talk 
talk about it before, but Ferguson is literally a place that has a white side and a black side. Um, I spent my childhood on West Florissant because that's where the black folks were. That's where our restaurants were. That's where our churches were. The woman, Miss Patrice, who braided my hair growing up, that's where she was. Um, and so I really didn't spend any time on South Florissant. South Florissant is where the police station is. It is also where a lot of these investments have been made. And so there are brand new buildings and restaurants and eateries there uh, because when people invested in Ferguson, much of the investment has essentially been made on the white side. Um, I'm sadly not at all surprised by this. Um, and it, it, it confirms a lot of the suspicions that we had in the very beginning. Even as a Ferguson commissioner, we were focused on the underlying issues of race and racial justice. And I am thankful for the work that continues to happen on that in the community, both by Forward Through Ferguson, which is the organization that came out of the Ferguson Commission, the St. Louis Action Council, who have kept everybody accountable, who have taken to the streets and to the policy table every single time it's needed to happen, and so many other people who are still working in St. Louis. But it is high time that corporations and business leaders in the city that I call home, in the city that I love, actually operate with a sense of equity. Writing a check is not good enough. You actually have to think about where that check is going, who it is helping, and who it will be benefiting. If it will be benefiting all of the same people that have already been doing just fine, then your check is not actually doing anything. And I'd rather you keep it and learn a little something about how segregation and the opening of the wealth gap works instead of write a check that's actually not going to help and support the people and empower the people that need it. So shout out to all of those who are still working and still pushing. I remember, you know, DeRay, you'll remember going to Ferguson Burger Bar all the time. It was one of the few black-owned restaurants on West Florissant. And we used to try to intentionally go there all the time. We would have planning meetings there. They they would stay open late night just for the protesters. And they're now closed down, even though we all tried to invest our money in them. And so we just have to see something different in communities like Ferguson all over the country who are majority black and who do not get the kind of investments that they deserve. So like you said, Brittany, this is a reminder, not only uh, in Ferguson, but for so many communities across the country, how systemic racism shows up not only in the ways in which systems and structures create problems, but also in the ways in which uh, people and organizations and uh, folks who you know want to do uh, you know, good work and invest and, and donate are also making decisions based on many of the same biases where you're seeing, you know, the groups that are sort of most marginalized, uh, communities that are most marginalized are not the ones who are receiving investment and donations. Oftentimes, those flows of, of money actually go towards organizations that already have the infrastructure uh, to be visible, that already have, you know, the right paperwork and requirements and you know, all of what needs to be set up to actually uh, receive money as a 501c3, to manage that, to write a proposal, to do all of these things that often are a requirement to even qualify for, you know, a grant, a substantial grant at least. And so, you know, we have to think more critically about not only how systemic racism shows up uh, on the front end, but also how systemic racism shows up in our attempts to actually remedy inequities in the first place. I think, too, when we talk about money, uh, I think about this idea of the tyranny of the already organized, that when money comes into places, it rarely touches people who might be doing the most incredible work or have this really interesting passion that just needs to be developed. It goes to mechanisms that like just already have an infrastructure to manage money, which might not be anything about impact, might not be anything about outcomes or results. 
is that if you have a 501c3 and there's people trying to give away money, then like that is just an easy sort of way to do it. And I think that we saw that. I, I definitely remember Brittany, us having this conversation when the movement began about like, look at all this money sort of pouring into things that aren't really the energy that started the protest, not the energy that sustained the protest, but they already had a 501c3. They already had a, a this and they already had a board or they knew how to write a grant and da da da. And I think that for all the lip service that philanthropy has actually done over the last four years to like change a strategy and da da da, I think it's just been cosmetic that like it really, the space still privileges the people who like know how to write grants, know how to like organize a 501c3. And I say is like, you know, people give us a lot of grief for like, they think that we are the people that got the millions and, and we didn't. But the only reason that we were able to even start a 501c3 is that a really kind celebrity like offered her legal team to help us do it. And I say that as somebody who like, who like we are relatively connected and it's still like the legal process itself was enough that like we couldn't just like make it up on our own. And again, you think about how the spacious privileges people who like already have the tools to play the game. And I think philanthropy for the last four years has been saying they've been doing something differently and they have not. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Sun Basket, everybody, no secret, I can't cook. But Sun Basket <laughs> has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. But for me, what matters is that Sun Basket helps me eat healthier. It helps me eat it all because, again, <laughs> I don't really cook. And it's really as simple as that. They make it easy and convenient to cook healthy and delicious meals at home. And I'm telling y'all, the portion stuff is big because on the days where I might be like, let me go try and make this thing off a recipe I like found online, I have no clue what to buy. I just don't mm-hmm. get it. But I don't need to because I got some basket. Yeah, we know you don't know what you're doing, DeRay. Yeah, but they got more options than ever. And the 18 weekly recipes is actually a lot. You can easily cook the dishes like the salmon, get some green beans. It's good. The best news is that Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce, and it's responsibly raised meats and seafoods that come in every packet. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep, so ding, 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 this is why this stuff is made exactly for people <laughs> like DeRay. You don't have to guess, and you can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in just about 30 minutes, because let's be honest, not only do you not know how to measure things, you don't have a lot of time, and neither do I. There's something for every healthy journey and even every busy lifestyle. Go to sunbasket.com slash people today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash people for $35 off. Sunbasket.com slash people. Okay, my news is about the Secretary of Education. Hopefully this administration is over soon. Uh, Secretary DeVos, who the headline of the article is sort of enough to just give you a top line about what's going on. And it is about civil rights complaints. And it is that Betsy DeVos has scrapped more than... 1,200 civil rights probes started by the Obama administration. So under the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Department of the Department of Education can investigate school systems. This is really important because most uh, state departments of education don't really have the capacity or the expertise to do civil rights investigations really well. And I say that as somebody who worked as a senior member in Baltimore and in Minneapolis, Minneapolis had a finding from the civil rights uh, division for uh, our over suspensions of uh, kids of color. And what you find is that DeVos has just started closing them really quickly. So there are all these stats around like how they're closing them really quickly. One of the things I want to double click on is that what they've done is that they've actually said that there are no more proactive cases. So under Obama, 
if the news exposed that there was deep disparity, if there was like a report that came out, if there was something that wasn't a complaint, like a formal complaint file, but it was clear that there was something to investigate, the administration would start investigating it. DeVos has said no more proactive investigations. Under Obama, they also said, like, even if a complaint comes in about one specific thing, we're going to look at the systemic issues that caused that thing that might have caused it. DeVos has said no more looking at systemic issues. It can only be confined directly to the explicit complaint. Uh, Obama also said that they were going to review at least three years of data for all complaints around sexual assault and race. She said no longer reviewing data. And then... Uh, under Obama and before, there were some complaints that had to be stopped centrally. That like at the 12 regional offices, they couldn't just close the case. Like the central office had to do it. What DeVos has now done is that she's allowed the 12 regional offices to just close complaints when they want to. So we're seeing like real noticeable dips in the complaints that are being sustained, noticeable dips in complaints that are actually like continuing because she's just closing them. And this is big because the federal government still to this day is one of the only sort of places to go around civil rights if you want an investigation, a finding of fact, some sort of remedy. And the long-term consequences of this are huge. And I think about just discipline alone, the deep disparities, and if not for the Department of Education, these school systems would be able to continue these racist practices. And there's no other mechanism that's not the Department of Education right now to intervene. You know, we were talking about distraction earlier. And one of the things that we were distracted from was that Trump has proposed to merge the Department of Education and the Department of Labor as part of a, quote, government reorganization process. And this is, it's scary for so many reasons, but especially in the context of what you're saying, DeRay. And, you know, we've been watching as Secretary DeVos has been closing out and declining to investigate these civil rights cases for several months now and, and watching them shutter that office, just like civil rights offices in other departments. But the idea that education and labor are one in the same says to me, or at least for me, implies the idea that children in public schools are only meant for cheap labor and that you actually don't need to bother yourself with investigating the crimes of race-based uh, issues or sexual assaults or anything that might be frustrating or offensive to them because you just need to use them for labor. Perhaps that is taking it a step further than other people think it should go. But that's all I see when I think about this proposal. Nobody asked Trump to reorganize the government. Like nobody said, wow, this is really inefficient and we really need education and labor to come together in some kind of way. We certainly did not ask Betsy DeVos to stop looking into the civil rights abuses that are happening in schools. If anything, we need those to have more attention paid to them. Um, and so I'm, I continue to be deeply concerned about the, the direction that this administration is taking. And we cannot be too vigilant about looking at every single detail because they are coming together in, in, a, in a plan that worries me. And if you think that they're not smart enough to create a plan, then that's, in my opinion, exactly what they want us to think. And we'd be wise to think the opposite. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I 
probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. And now Mike Johnson, candidate to be the governor of Colorado. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining me today on Pod Save the People. You bet. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we were both teachers at one point. You're a little older than me. No shade. How long ago did you teach? 20 years ago. Uh, I started teaching the Mississippi Delta 20 years ago. I know because I was just back seeing some of my former students, and they're all like 38 now. So they are, they are growing up. And what did you teach? Uh, I taught uh, high school English uh, in Greenville, Mississippi. And would you say you were a good teacher? Uh, I struggled the first six months, but I think I got better as I went along. So I think it would depend which class of students you asked. Uh, but uh, I love the experience. I think sometimes they taught me as much as I taught them, but it was a powerful, powerful experience for me. Now, you're running for office. Can you give a little bit of background on your political experience? And then I'd love to talk about the race. You bet. And yeah, I think for me, it, it all starts, folks say, you know, how to, how does a teacher or a school principal end up in politics in the first place? And because um, I, I was a teacher and then a principal of a number of different schools. I ran a school in a juvenile prison for a while, and I, I ran a district high school in, in North Denver. And I really had was loving this experience of taking over the school where we had about a 50% dropout rate. And we spent this heroic effort, amazing team of teachers over uh, about four years that turned that into what became the Colorado's first public high school where 100% of our seniors were all graduated from high school and then were all admitted to four-year colleges. And we thought this was a great success for about three days. Uh, and then about three days later, I was standing in the school cafeteria and one of my students comes up to me with tears running down his face and says to me, you know, Mr. Johnston, why did you make me do all this? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I did everything you ever asked me to do. I got good grades. I was on student council. I applied to college. I got in and you know, I'll never be able to go. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, well, because I'm undocumented. And today in the state Senate, the bill died that would have allowed undocumented kids to go to college at the same tuition rates as the rest of my classmates. And my best friend and I, since second grade, have been planning on going to University of Colorado. And now he's in is going to pay three or $4,000 a year with financial aid. If I go, I got to spend, you know, 30,000 with no financial aid. And you know, my mom doesn't make that much in a year. And for me, it was this moment where we thought we'd made such heroic progress to get our kids ready for college. And then there was this major policy obstacle that was going to keep almost half of the students on my stage with caps and gowns and diplomas from being able to pursue their dreams. And so that was the day I decided to run for the state Senate uh, and in part promising to my kids, we would try to solve that problem. And, you know, people say at this moment in American politics feels impossible that we can get big things done anymore. You know, that was 
not my experience. I got into the legislature and spent a couple of years trying to pass that. You know, if I failed once or twice myself, but eventually looked at this and said, well, the reason why we had failed was in, in the 12 years that people had tried this, there'd never been a single Republican who'd voted for the bill. Uh, and I thought, well, that seems crazy. I got a lot of Republican family members and Republican teachers on my staff and folks who, if they knew these kids that I did, would have backed this issue too. And so I, uh, I started traveling around the Eastern Plains and Southern Colorado, a lot of the most conservative parts of the state and talking to farmers and ranchers and state senators and business leaders about this issue. And I was, remember I was talking to one state senator who said, you know, I hear all the reasons why I can't support this bill, you know, but then he mentioned that he coaches his son's little league baseball team. And I thought, wow, you coach a little league baseball team in a small farming and ranching town in the Eastern Plains with a lot of immigrant families in it. I'm sure you got kids on your team, just like the kids in my school. And he says, now I know all my kids. I said, just, you know, just talk to him. So he goes home for the weekend and comes back on Monday and I'm standing at my desk on the Senate floor and he walks up to me and stands next to my desk and just looks at me and says, my third baseman, my third baseman is undocumented. Call the bill up for a vote today. And I did. And he became the first Republican in Colorado history to vote for the bill on the Senate floor, which meant that we passed it, meant the governor signed it, meant most of all, I got to get in my truck and drive back up to my old high school and watch my kids walk across the stage for the first time, pick up a cap and gown, get a diploma, hug their mama, and know they had some place to go. Uh, and so for me, that was really what got me into politics in the first place, was feeling like there was a problem I wanted to solve for kids that were I was working with for whom policy was the only answer. And for me, that's been a real lesson that it is really still possible to get big things done if we're able to kind of build the bridges to engage folks that sometimes aren't normally engaged. And so uh, that's what's got me into politics, and that's what's kept me in it, is I feel like this is a place where with the right kinds of coalitions and the right kind of courage, you can still get big things done. Now, you're term limited from running again in the, in the previous role. What would you say your successes in the state Senate have been, and what should we know about? So I think there are a number of things that I'm most proud of. But I think a big one has been you know, what are the ways in which we fight for kind of social justice and for equity in the policy landscape? And so one certainly has been education, uh, which was making sure that we had more expansion of access to early childhood education for low-income kids that needed it. It was making sure that we could have high-quality standards and high-quality uh, assessments so we knew that we were expecting this, that every child in the state was going to make growth wherever they were. I think the old system was people kind of assumed that demography was destiny, right? If you grew up in a low-income family or a low-income neighborhood, we assumed you just weren't going to do that well in that school. Our big change was to say, no, we think that every student in every neighborhood ought to be expected to improve over the course of their educational career, and that's what our schools are meant to do. And we know that the adults in this system are going to be successful when the kids are successful. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time on building a platform for educational equity across the state uh, and making sure there was the resources to fund kids that needed those that, that the most. And then a lot of work on criminal justice reform. You know, we did a lot of work on sentencing reform, on reducing and eliminating racial profiling, on trying to make sure that we had systems throughout our state uh, that helped treat everybody equally. Uh, and that, our, you know, we have a diverse state. And so a lot of this was about, yes, how do you make sure there's fairness in the inner city neighborhoods that I represented in Northeast Denver? And how do you make sure we're also attending to those rural communities on the Western Slope that don't have the problems Denver and Boulder have? Where they don't see massive economic growth right now. They see massive economic slowdown. They're folks that can't find jobs. And so did a lot of work on growing and developing economic development plans for rural parts of Colorado. So I think you know, our big focus has been on equity, and that has impact on education policy, has impact on criminal justice, has impact on economic policy, and how you think about really the diverse parts of the state and what we can do to support them in their own ways. Now, when you say equity, what does that mean? 
Uh, for me, it means that folks have the skills they need to succeed, uh, regardless of the places that they are up or the situations they might have come from. And so that is kind of getting, you know, I always think when I, you know, I have three kids and they don't all need the same thing, um, but they need different supports to have access to the same opportunities. And so for me, it's about how do we provide that sense of fairness that makes sure we meet you where you are and provide you the resources you need to succeed. And why governor? Why do you want to be the next governor of the great state of Colorado? <laughs> Uh, that was what my daughter asked me as well when I made this decision about nine months ago. Um, and you know, what, what I found is we're in a moment right now in American politics where people aren't really sure that this whole experiment in democracy works anymore, right? People are wondering, is it really true that good people can come together anymore and solve big problems? And I think there's a lot of counter evidence to that at the national level in the same way 20 years ago, people weren't sure that you could have classrooms where low-income kids would come in and come out as prepared as kids in wealthy communities until teachers and school leaders built schools that proved that to be false. And then people suddenly believed that it was possible. And so for me, this is about, can we build a state at least where we can show what's still possible, which is, yes, we can take on the big challenges that are ahead of us. We can apply progressive values to way to solve these problems, whether it's education or whether it's criminal justice or whether it's even immigration policies, and say, if we can show that it's possible here in Colorado, uh, that I think forces the other 49 states to say, no, the problem is not just that politics is broken and you can't fix it. It's that you need a broad coalition of people who care, uh, who are willing to invest deeply in changing uh, outcomes for everybody in their state. And I think that's something that really only a governor can do where you can bring all the communities together, build an agenda that's inclusive, and then try to push it forward uh, in a way that shows what's still possible. And so I feel like if we do that, we not just solve the big problems facing Colorado over the next decade, but we just maybe light a lantern out here on the Continental Divide to show the other 49 states how they can find their own way back home to what we were at our best, which was a place where actually good people can solve big problems. I want to know what you think about inequity in Colorado. It's a state that has deep native history. You talked about the history of immigration and the large numbers of Latino and Central American communities and the outcomes are still disparate in many parts of the state. What can be done about those things? I mean, that was one of the things that brought me home in the first place. I was teaching in Mississippi and I'd come home and folks would say, oh gosh, what's it like to you know work in such a backward state where it's so racist and no one has opportunity? Uh, and then I started looking at the data. And if you look at the states that have the single highest college completion achievement gap, um, which is, you know, if you're a fifth or sixth grader who's a Latino or African-American kid who just wants to complete college in their own state, what states do you have the best chance and the worst chance? Well, the state with the worst chance of you completing college at that point was not Mississippi. It was not Alabama. It was not Tennessee. It was Colorado. And so people think of it as a state full of folks who love to ski and hike and bike, and it's attracting a lot of great talent, and it is. But that is the what we call the Colorado paradox. We're attracting a lot of great talent from New York and California who want to move to Colorado. We are not at all doing a great job of developing and growing our own talent from right here within the state. So I think there is a deep need to support an agenda around equity. Um, and I think that's about three things. One, it's about expanding high quality early childhood education to make sure all those kids have access to the preparation they need to start kindergarten ready. Second is making sure you actually have a system from kindergarten to 12th grade that funds the needs of students wherever those students go. So we have more and more dollars that follow those kids who need more and more support because I think that is what equity looks like. 
And then the third is we have to build a new system for how we're going to prepare people for the jobs of the future. And so we know that as more and more industries disappear, we have young people who are prepared for the jobs that are coming. I think that's about getting access to college and getting access to workforce development. I think those are the three big plays that right now are opportunities that are not equally distributed across the whole population. Uh, Our job is to build a system in the state that does, I think, all of those in an equitable way. Boom. Mike, thanks for being here today. And we consider your friend of the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to get to see you again soon and uh, happy to jump back on anytime. And now, Mayla Mitchell, candidate to be the next governor of Wisconsin. Mayla Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. Well, there have been very few black governors in the country. So I'm excited to talk to you today. And what is, why are you running for governor? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm a firefighter by trade. I've been on a job here in the city of Madison, our capital city in Wisconsin, for 20-plus years. And a lot of people ask me that question, why am I running for governor? Uh, And it really dates back to a time as to why I got involved in my union, actually. And I got involved in my union because of a horrific accident um, by one of our members who was young. Uh, He had just had a couple years on a job. His father was on a job. Uh, He was a military vet, 22 years old, had, had everything in front of him. Uh, he was in a horrific snowmobile accident up north, Wisconsin, uh, that ended up leaving him paralyzed. Uh, he was a quadriplegic. And what I saw from the time that he got hurt in the accident to the time that he passed a couple years ago um, was brothers and sisters, firefighters coming together, more importantly, my union coming together to be a safety net, so to speak, for Casey Carlin and to help him through his greatest tragedy and his time of need. Uh, we built him, we banded together and built him a house. Uh, we bought him the best health care money could buy, home health care. Uh, bought him the best uh, wheelchair that money could buy. Um, and also we were able to take, in Wisconsin, hunting's a big deal. Uh, we were actually able to take him hunting uh, years after his accident. And it, that's what made me get involved in a union. And that's what made me say, hey, our, the rest of our state should look like this. Our, our, our job uh, should be, as elected officials, should be to take care of all the people of this state. And everybody needs a little help at times. And I'll tell you, as firefighters, we respond to our community on the worst days of their lives. And when people are at their worst, we have to be at our best. So uh, I'm running because we need help. Uh, We have a a governor that doesn't, quite frankly, give a damn about the rest of the state. All he cares about is his own political aspirations. He ran for president. Uh, He had about 28 days doing that. And now he's coming back after losing that and saying that he wants to refocus on Wisconsin. And it's time to turn the page on Governor Walker. Now, what would you identify as like the biggest issues in Wisconsin? Well, we have a lot of them. I would say number one, uh, close to number one, is education. I have two kids. I have a daughter that's a freshman in college, a son who's in eighth grade. Um, and education has been hit hard in our state. Our governor took $1.6 billion um, from public education in his first budget. Uh, now that he's running for office again, he's put back $630 million, and he's calling that progress. Um, it's kind of like a wise man once said. It's like taking a knife, sticking it nine inches in my back, and pulling it out four inches, and now I'm supposed to say thank you. Um, you still have a knife in your back. And you know, we have a, a low wage uh, economy as well here in the state. You know, our, our governor always talks about us having a 2.8 percent unemployment rate, but he's looking at Wisconsinites essentially as a statistic. Uh, we're more than that. Um, people are working two or three jobs just to make ends meet. You shouldn't have to go to fish fry on Friday and wonder how you got to pay for it on Monday. Uh, health care is a huge issue. We have over 300,000 people in the state of Wisconsin right now that have no health care whatsoever. Uh, we, can, we can do better than that. And we can make sure that everyone has is on what we have called Badger Care, which is our state Medicaid program, that we can have everybody actually um, 
be covered, not just have access, but actually have real adequate health care. You know, another big issue for us is we, we have the highest African-American male incarceration rate in the country, Wisconsin does. And I'm a black man, and it doesn't escape me that I'm also raising two black kids um, and, quite frankly, the worst place to raise black children. Um, there's a lot of criminal justice reform that is needed in our state. Um, and, I, and I talk about that whether I'm in, in a group of, uh, or a community of people of color or black people like me or if I'm uh, in a, in a, in speaking in a town hall when it's just all white people. Because at the end of the day, it's not just one of moral, morals or ethics. Uh, it's about ec- the economy as well. We spend over a billion dollars a year on the Department of Corrections. State of Wisconsin spends more money per year locking people up in a Department of Corrections than we do actually educating our youth by way of the University of Wisconsin uh, system. So there's a lot of things we need to work on here in our state, but um, we have to give everybody the freedom to thrive. And we only do that by actually having a governor that, that cares about people. And, and we talked about, you know, you referenced the, the issues with justice in the state of Wisconsin. We know that Wisconsin incarcerates more black men than any other state. What can be done about the criminal justice system there? Well, you got to lead. And the first thing uh, we need to do is pull all of the leaders uh, into one room. And that's Republicans and Democrats, quite frankly. Um, Wisconsin's a purple state. So we're always going to have um, um, Republicans and, and Democrats that need to work together in order to get um, things done. And what you can do is actually tackle head on the systemic um, racism and a lot of implicit biases that we see in our government. And, we, and you do that. Um, by looking at the earn release program, being addicted is not a crime. So we need people actually that are need the help and need the mental help that they need, um, that they get the help. And that's that's through funding. Um, we have what's called truth and sentencing, which has done the ill, the reverse effects of actually overcrowding our prisons. It's done that um, we need to decrim marijuana right away and not put people away for minor offenses and nonviolent crimes. Uh, I've come out for full, full legalization of recreational marijuana and medicinal here in our state. And I would have taxed it appropriately, but use that, those dollars for the opioid crisis, which is killing um, everybody in our state and all, all types of folks. Um, but we, we can do a lot of things. Um, we have the ability in our state to put about 16,000 people in jail. And right now we have over 20, 23,000 folks that are incarcerated. So there's a lot of uh, things we need to do. We, we need to ban the box and take the F off the front of those applications because we're asking people – um, to go back and be re- reacclimated with society, but we're not giving them a fair shot at actually being able to do that. Um, our revocation pro- process is horrible here in the state. We got the highest recidivism rates. Uh, that's because of crimeless revocations, where people are out on extended supervision, um, they're out on, on, on parole, and they're put back for um, crimeless acts and, and things that are, are not uh, hurting anyone uh, here in, in, in Wisconsin. So, there are a lot of things that we can do that we can tackle, and the governor is, should take the lead in that. Now, we saw the Sterling Brown video, uh, a video of police violence by the Milwaukee Police Department. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He got tased and beat up by police officers. What can be done about police violence in Wisconsin? Ooh. You know, we, when I saw the Sterling Brown video, and I was on MSNBC talking about this not too long ago, but um, there is a problem. Um, and I could be Sterling Brown. My 15-year-old son um, could be Sterling Brown, and it only takes one instance, one bad incident to uh, make that happen. So, you know, a lot of times I, I, you know, and being a firefighter, I work closely with police officers all the time, 
And a lot of times what you hear when incidents happen are people talking at each other and talking around each other. Um, but if we don't actually get um, people to the table and stakeholders to the table to actually talk about the issues, uh, we will never have true change. Even even good, you know, good cops don't want bad cops on the street. So um, if we don't actually bring people to the table and hold people accountable, hold bad cops accountable, and that's why we're seeing the outrage in communities. We're seeing the outrage because um, folks get away with actually doing things that are, quite frankly, inhumane and that shouldn't be done. Um, but it's going to require us getting together, talk about training uh, for police officers, um, talking about implicit bias, but talking to um, management as well as the unions and actually bringing folks together to talk about how we can make changes and, and, and how um, their, their policing communities of color. It's going to require community policing and hiring people that look like uh, folks that they are policing and, and hiring people that um, are from the neighborhoods to actually um, be there to help provide uh, security and safety. Um, but instead of putting, you know, until we actually provide opportunities, you know, I, and I, I loop all some of this together. And maybe I shouldn't, but I, sh- I do. So, until we actually provide opportunities to communities that need them, more specifically communities of color, um, we're never going to solve the school-to-prison pipeline. We're never going to solve here in our state that we put more blacks in jail than any other state in the country. We're never going to s- solve a lot of the interactions and negative interactions we have um, with, with police. Because if there's no opportunities there, then what the hell do you think people are supposed to do? And the Sterling Brown incident, that's separate from what I'm talking about. But, you know, uh, Sterling Brown just made us all realize if we didn't that it could, be, it could happen to anybody. Uh, and I knew that before the Sterling Brown incident. But, you know, when I look at some of the other incidents that happen here in our state. Um, people don't have opportunities, man. You know, it's, it's like if, you know, they, they're telling parents and teachers are saying, OK, you don't make enough money to support you and your family. But if you have two or three jobs, then you might make enough to be able to do that. Well, when mother or father or mother and father are working two or three jobs just to make ends meet. Well, little uh, Jimmy or little Dante is going to be hanging out on a street corner. If they're hanging out on a street corner, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing by way of school. But then the state cuts education, so now we're cutting education, so now after-school programs are being cut. So now mom and dad are at, at work. Uh, their, their sons or daughter are out on the street corner. Now they don't get the proper uh, food and nutrition they need. Affordable housing is not adequately available in our state. And now the parents come home in the wee hours of the night. They're supposed to help their kids with homework. And they're supposed to get them to bed on time, which, all right, that's too late. Now you wake up and you send your kid to school. And your kid, everything that's happening at home spills over into the classroom. Now we're asking teachers who are underpaid and overworked to now not only be the teacher, but also be the mental health professional, be the parent a lot of times, be the, the counselor, uh, be the, the judge and the jury. And that's, that's, just, that's why we have the school-to-prison pipeline here. And it's going to keep repeating itself till we actually sit down and handle the real root of the problem, and that is we don't have opportunities in communities of color, and until we have that, we will never be a better state. And what can be done at the state level around LGBTQ issues? Well, we've had a lot of uh, provisions that have been scaled back uh, by way of our state budget, also by way of legislation when it comes to protections uh, for people of color as well as um, those that are LGBTQI. Um, What we need to do, actually, and this is what we need to do with, with all people in our state, and that is, quite frankly, listen. And, and bring them to the table 
um, so that, um, and I will have them in my administration so that we're making sure that we're taking care of all the people of the state of Wisconsin. Now, I hear you offer this sort of progressive vision, and I know there are a lot of people running who are offering a, pro- a progressive vision as well. But what has held Wisconsin back from being as progressive as people seem to want it to be? Like, what, what's the what behind the holdup? Uh, it's been this administration. Um, it's been the politics that we've seen in the last seven years. Uh, and it's our governor. And I don't like to just sit around and talk about what's wrong with Scott Walker. I like to talk about what's right with us. But um, it is what it is. And it's, it's austerity measures. Um, it's, it's rolling back years of protections. Um, Act 10, which was the, the bill that was passed that scaled back collective bargaining to nothing for public sector employees. Uh, we become a right-to-work state. Um, we have low wages and unfortunately, the state has stayed stagnant or going backwards in, in every sense of the imagination when it comes to any metric, um, because our governor quite is taking um, necessities from many to give luxuries to the few. He believes that when you give money and tax breaks and incentives to those at the very top, that it will trickle down to the rest of us and it will it'll make the state better. But that defies logic, uh, common sense and history. Um, but our governor has has really taken us backwards, and it, it's unfortunate. Now, can you explain right to work for the people that don't know what right to work is, and and then what the impact has been? Um, well, Act Ten uh, was, was a draconian um, and, and the 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 longest serving attack and the first attack um, on workers' rights. That's the one that killed public sector collective bargaining. Uh, fire and police, we were exempt from that, um, but the firefighters, we stood out against it, even though. Uh, we were exempt from all the changes in 2011 with Act 10. And that's where you saw the protests. And I was there all the time speaking on behalf of the firefighters across the state. And we came out because, uh, you know, now they call it solidarity. But back then we just called it the right thing to do. And as firefighters, we respond to emergencies. And that's what we were doing there. We had an emergency in our state. Um, and, and that's why we're responding. It's the same thing with right to work. Um, we are a right to work state now. And essentially what, what all these laws have done is our governor is trying to sabotage or to suppress his political enemies. Anyone that doesn't think like him, anyone um, that, that is pro-worker, he is trying to sabotage and essentially keep, keep, uh, keep uh, the hand on, on those workers that want to rise up. So um, that's why we're seeing right to work. That's why we saw Act 10. Um, that's why we saw project labor agreements being taken away and prevailing wage as well has been repealed, um, which hurts the middle, middle class workers and and those that, that are living below middle class and just the working families in, 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 in general here in our state. If you're elected governor, can you end right to work or does it have to go through the legislature? Or like what, what would you do as governor? Um, right to work would be an act 10 would have to go through the legislature. Um, now, I'm going to work like hell to make sure we have a Democratic uh, legislature. But unfortunately, with our gerrymandering process that the Republicans did and our redistricting, um, it, it will have to actually go through um, the Assembly and the Senate to pass. And it's going to be hard with the gerrymandering for us to have a, a Democratic Assembly. So what we, what we have a plan to do is raise wages for all working people here in our state. Uh, I've come out for $15 an hour uh, very early in our state. Before it was sexy, now everyone's saying it. Um, but I also have a plan, if you go to our website, it's called Raising Wages and Restoring Power to Working People. Um, essentially, it does two things. It uh, raises wages uh, for anyone that's doing any business with the state to $15 an hour and also um, sets up what's called a sectoral commissions where you actually set up regionally 
um, employers, employees, and governor appointed civilians to talk about wages because what you can, what you can afford and, and where, how far your money will go in certain parts of the state aren't the same in, in the southeastern and south central part of the state. So $15 an hour is just a floor, uh, but we can do a lot better than that. And when we talk about you know right to work or money and right to work in the economy, we also have to look at health care. A lot of people don't have health care. They're making a decision um, to either um, pay their rent or their mortgage or pay for their health care premiums. And that's not a decision that anyone should have to make. So there's a lot of things we need to do here in our state to make sure that uh, um, we get back to a progressive state that we once were. Now, I know Wisconsin because it's notorious for voter suppression, voter ID, uh, disenfranchising people of color and, and poor people. What's your take on how, at the state level, voting can be made more accessible, especially for people of color and poor people? Well, you know what they've done? They've not, they've not only done voter registration uh, here, voter ID, which I, obviously is voter suppression. Uh, it's the same John, the John Birch Society is alive and well here, uh, here in our state, quite frankly. Um, but they've also closed down the ability for those folks that need to go to DMV um, to actually go get their ID. Um, so they've done. They've, they've closed down DMV offices all across the state, and surprise, surprise, some are in communities of color. Um, they've they've changed the hours. They've shortened the hours. Um, they've shortened early voting by a, a week. Um, and these are all things to suppress the vote. So we need to do everything in our power as a governor um, to make sure that everyone can exercise, which is the right, um, the right to vote. So that's early voting. Um, that's helping getting everyone IDs. Um, and also uh, mail voting as well. Now you are the first. Uh, you're the first firefighter I've ever spoken to. So I'm your first. Yeah, <laughs> is real life firefighting anything like the firefighting that we see on TV or in the movies? It is nothing like that. It, it, it's um, like if you watch Chicago Fire. Um, some some of the station life is that way. But obviously it's Hollywood, so it has to be um, put out there um, to be interesting a lot of times. But, you know, when you go, like when you watch Backdraft, um, when you watch um, like Ladder 49, those movies and those shows, and you can you, you see the firefighters go in and they're talking to each other. Um, they're walking through the fire. I mean, they're, they're, sometimes they don't have their mask on. You can't do that. You you wouldn't last very long without a mask uh, and walking through a fire. We actually are on our hands and knees a lot of times. Um, we can't. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. You, you're literally using your senses and your training to actually get the job done. There's no there's no talking really. There's no walking. Um, we work as a team, but when we go in, it's it's nothing like it is on TV. But the ill effects, unfortunately, of being a firefighter is our our number one killer uh, for firefighters is actually cancer, occupational cancer. Um, I, I get, I get on a job pretty young, so I can't hear because of the, I've been listening to sirens so long. I actually have a hard time hearing because that, but that's kind of my own fault because I didn't wear the ear protection back in the day. Cause you had to be cool and it wasn't cool to wear that stuff. Uh, but we also have a lot of firefighters suffer from PTSD. Um, right now we actually lost more fire, more firefighters by way of suicide last year than we did actually, um, fighting fires or in the line of duty. What separates you from the people you're running against? You know, I'm the only person of color, and the other people are boring. <laughs> well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend. 
and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.